Open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 1. I tell you what, I love church camp, but when I'm sitting in church camp, I'm in agony because somebody's preaching and it's not me. And I love to hear people preach, but I just I just couldn't wait. So y'all are going to get both barrels this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to continue in our series on the book of Romans. Um, the theme of Romans, anybody remember? The righteousness of God. Write that down if you forget. So next week when I ask, you know what's going to be on the test at the end, right? Write it anyway. The first week we talked about a changed life. We saw the example of Paul, how he was changed from, from Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, and the, became the man of God that, that God used to, to be the greatest missionary ever, ever lived. And we saw that the scriptures teach that God changes all who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. By the way, two during our camp, two girls were saved that are from our Wednesday night group. And uh, they don't get to come on Sundays. I, they're not with their grandmother, I guess, on Sundays. But on Wednesday nights, their grandmother brings them. And I, I so appreciate Melody. She's done this class for, what, three years now? And, and these little girls have been coming. They got to come to camp this year and gave. I got to be with them and prayed for Christ. Anyway, uh, a changed life. And then last week, we looked at the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the message that Christ died for his sins, that he was buried and he rose again the third day and appeared before many witnesses. And we saw that the gospel is the power for God, uh, excuse me, the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And we also saw in Romans 10, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the gospel. Well, one of the things we skipped over in, in Romans one, we're going to finish Romans one today. One of the verses we skipped over was verse eight. So look up there real quick. This is going to be free. This is extra. It doesn't count on my time to preach. So anyway, uh, I love this. Uh, Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. And I was reading that during my quiet time this past week and God began to speak to me. How is the the news of the faith of Lynn Lane Baptist Church being spread abroad, which I think is the King James word. And, and I got to thinking about that, about how God has used Lynn Lane Baptist Church over the last 25 years to touch the world. Shortly before I came to Lynn Lane Baptist Church as pastor, a couple was appointed. Uh, the, the young lady was raised right here at Lynn Lane Baptist Church. They were appointed by the IMB to the go to the nations. They served four years in Indonesia, and God used them to touch the nations. They were nurtured right here in this church. They were discipled by this church, and so we touched the nations. And then I got to thinking about how many families have gone off from this church on short-term mission trips in the last 25 years to places like Mexico and Argentina and Brazil and Macedonia and Ireland and Germany and Wales. At least three of them, and maybe more, were teenagers. Various groups have gone out from Lynn Lane Baptist Church on, on short-term mission trips here in the United States to places like Cincinnati, Ohio, and Port Arthur, Texas, and Dallas, Texas, and Houston, Texas, and St. Louis, Louis, Missouri. Several individuals have gone out from Lynn Lane Baptist Church to min minister here in our city and in our state. And faithfully, you have supported the International Mission Board's Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And let me brag on you a little bit. It's not this year, but a few years back, Lynn Lane Baptist Church gave more per capita 
to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering than any other church in our association. Two years in a row. And one of those years, Lynn Lane Baptist Church gave more than any other church in Rogers Baptist Association to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We've touched the world. And faithfully, you've given year after year to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering to reach North America. And year after year, we have, we have worked to, to put together shoeboxes. And we sent, I don't remember how many we sent. How many we sent this year? Jenny, do you remember? 75. Kathy, do you remember? I think it was 75 shoeboxes this year that we sent that have been taken to the nations. And you prayed over those. And, and, and we've helped to reach people in the world from Lynn Lane Baptist Church. And two ethnic congregations have met in our building. My prayer is that Lynn Lane Baptist Church will always have a heart for the nations and will always be usable and that we'll start going again. You know, COVID kind of put a stop to a lot of that. Well, we can go now again. So let's praise God for how He's used us and pray that God will continue to use us to touch the world. Well, like I said, that was free, that was extra. Doesn't count my time. Okay, so we start 60 minutes right now, but set your timer. This week we're going to talk in our message about the man of the world. Max Lucado has written a book entitled In the Grip of Grace. By the way, have any of y'all read books by Max Lucado? Did you know he was a missionary to Brazil? He and I have that in common. Anyway, I haven't written a book like he has. But anyway, in, in its book, In the Grip of Grace, he wrote about the book of Romans. And he said that Paul wrote about four different men in the book of Romans. And I'd like to share his analogy of these men. He talked about a father who lived in, the, in a mountain castle with his five sons. The oldest was the obedient son. The others were rebellious. The father warned his sons to stay away from the river, but they wouldn't listen. Each day, the boys would creep closer and closer and closer to the river until finally one of them reached out and put his hand in the river. He says to his brothers, now hold on to my hand so I don't fall in. But the current was so strong that it pulled him in along with his three other brothers. And they struggled for hours against the current, but they were swept downstream uh, and finally came to a place many miles downriver where there was a land inhabited by savage people. After trying and failing for many times to get back to their father's castle, they decided to stay there and wait for their dad to send someone to come and get them. They said, we will never forget our father and our older brother. And so they sat around the campfire telling stories about the father and the brother. Then one night, one of the brothers failed to show up. When the other brothers found him, he built a hut among the savages. They confronted him, and he replied, What good does it to do to repeat the stories and to remember what it was like with father? I'll stay there in the land. When they asked him about his father, he replied, What about him? He isn't here. Do I have to wait forever for his ar arrival? I'm making new friends. I'm learning new ways. If he comes, he comes. But I'm not going to hold my breath. A few days later, a second brother failed to show up at the fire. They finally found him on a hill overlooking his brother's hut, and he was writing down all the bad things that his brother had done. And he compared himself to his brother. 
Rather than return to the fire, he preferred to record the brother the, the sins of all his brother had done. Later, a third brother failed up to show to the fire, failed to show up at the fire. But when he found his brother, he was in the river piling, piling up rocks, trying to get back to his father's castle. He'd given up on the father ever coming to him, so he was going to work his way back to the father. Finally, the elder brother showed up. He came to the fire to rescue his brothers, but he only found one. This one was willing to be carried by the firstborn back to the father and receive his forgiveness for his disobedience. The first brother refused to return to the presence of the father because he wanted to stay among his new friends. He said, I have no father. I have no need for forgiveness. The second brother refused to return rather than dealing with his own sin. He focused on condemning his brother. And rather than return to the father, he says, I'll just stay right here with my notebook and I'll catalog his sins. After all, his sins were nothing compared to the sins of his brother who lived among the savages. The third brother refused to return with, with the older brother as well. Even though he was offered forgiveness, he felt the only way that he could get forgiveness was to earn it by working his way back to the father. So he refused as well. So here we have four sons. One son resolved to indulge himself with the world. One son opted to compare himself to others and others standing in judgment. One son decided to, to earn his way back to the father if he could, which he couldn't. But one son decided to entrust himself to the father. And then there's one line in the book that I, I just loved. Uh, when the brother who was returning to the father with the firstborn asked, will he forgive me? The firstborn responded, would he have sent me if I hadn't? All these four men, Paul says, are in the book of Romans. We're going to look at the first one today. Uh, the man who chose to indulge himself. So if you just take your Bibles and stand with me, we're going to begin reading at the 18th verse of Romans chapter 1. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the, in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what was, has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them, excuse me, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. 
The women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. God committed shameless acts with men in receiving their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God de delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that, so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, slant, uh, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Father, thank you for your word and the warning that we get about what it costs to remain in the world, to remain separated from Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that as we see the man of the world, that you'll break our heart for those that are lost that are around us, that we know that need Jesus. And Father, if there's anyone listening to me today, whether they're in the congregation today or they're listening on, on uh, through the internet, that they would be convicted of their sins and surrender their life to Jesus and be saved. Father, anoint the preaching of your word today. Anoint our hearing so that as the Spirit of God speaks to us, we will respond to you. We praise you, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Paul begins by saying in, in verse 18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Many today have the wrong idea about God's wrath. In fact, there are quite a few people that, that even Christians who don't believe what the Bible says about wrath, they, they don't even think that God really will punish sin. Uh, they see God more like a grandfather that dotes over and indulges his grandchildren. Well, that's what grandfathers do, but that's not a good picture of God. Others see God as a high school principal. Remember your high school principal? He'd be out in the hallway and making noises and stuff, and he really wasn't in charge, was he? And some people see God like that. Pastors Colin Smith wrote, Peace is a truth people love, but wrath is a truth widely loathed. There are many in the history of the church who've been embarrassed by God's wrath and have wanted to revise this biblical truth, yet the theme of the wrath of God towards sin and sinners is clear and widely taught in the Bible. In fact, a few years ago, there was a, a, a book came out, there was a movie made about it that, that a lot of Christians read, and the, the book is very unbiblical, and, and you'll know when I mention it, it's called The Cabin. And The Cabin mentioned the love of God, but never mentioned the wrath of God. Now, I don't recommend anybody read it because there are so many unscriptural pictures uh, of God in that. But anyway... But the Bible talks about wrath, God's wrath. So what does it mean? Well, the wrath is God's attitude towards sin. God doesn't weak at sin. God's anger is always against sin. Now, I found an article from uh, the open Bible that lists six things about the wrath of God that I think will be helpful for us to understand what that means. First, 
The anger of God is not like our anger. God's wrath is just and measured uh, because it's his response to sin. His anger is not capricious like ours is. I mean, we might get angry over, over something that happens in traffic. Some of those stupid cars, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, God didn't get mad and hold grudges. Secondly, God's wrath is provoked. The anger is, of God is not something that resides in him. By nature, it's his response to evil. Now, the Bible says God is love. That is his nature. And God does many things because of his nature of love. In fact, the Bible says God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's nature. God's love is not provoked because he sees something good in us and said, oh, isn't that cute? It's that his nature. But wrath is provoked. It's different. If there was no sin in the world, there would be no wrath of God because sin provokes God's wrath. Third, God is slow to anger. The Bible says it's God's desire that all be saved and that none perish and face his In fact, he sent Jesus to save men from their sins. But all who reject Jesus and the salvation that God offers will face the wrath of God, the judgment for sin. Number four, God's wrath is being revealed now. God reveals his wrath when sinners suppress the truth about him or exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the creator. That's what he says there in Romans. It's now, not later. One writer said, Paul's not teaching that one day God will punish Roman civilization for its vice and decadence. On the contrary, the vice and decadence are themselves God's punishment. Their punishment was their greed, envy, strife, deceit, violence, and faithfulness. When we see the moral fiber of our, our own nation being broken down, then as Christians we should cry out to God for mercy because he, that's God's judgment on sin. He turns men over, as we're going to see in a little bit, to their sin. Um, number five, God's wrath not only is it being shown now, but it's going to be stored up. One day, the Bible says, will come the great day of the Lord in which God's wrath will be poured out on all sin. And number six, God's wrath is upon sinners. As believers, we do not experience the wrath of God. Uh, John 3.36 says, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And Ephesians 2, 3 says, by nature, speaking of our old nature, we are children of wrath. That's the state in which we were born. So God's wrath is revealed against sin. Why? Because sin separates us from God. God's wrath is revealed because of what it cost him to redeem us, the death of his son on the cross. And God's wrath is against sin because of what it has done to our society. Now, there are several lists in the Bible of sin. I'm sure it's not all inclusive. But in Romans 1, Paul gives us this list. Evil, greed, wickedness, envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slandering, hating God, arrogance, pride, being boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
I always thought it was interesting that was in there. Senseless, untrustworthy, and unloving, and merciful. And then, in Galatians 5, he gives us the, the, the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, evil, evil excuse me, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Then Paul added, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. Nor, and it goes on and on. God's wrath is against sin. Well, we just disproved that myth that God is not a God of wrath. Well, Paul goes on to say what that means. God, first he says, God's wrath is revealed because the truth about himself and about men have been rejected. Sandy, would you get my water, please? It's right there in the view. He says men are without excuse. Keep your Bibles, thank you. Keep your Bibles open to First Corinthians, to Romans 1, because we're going to be referring to that a lot. Excuse me. Verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since that, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. <clears throat> As a result, people are without excuse. How much of what we see on the news or read teach evil? How much, how much do we read and see about people that, that, that hate truth? There are a lot of things that are going on in our world today that people flaunt that, that 20 to 30 years ago we would never have imagined because people have always tried to suppress the truth. Satan is a liar and a counterfeiter. He hates the truth, and he's always trying to blind men and women, boys and girls, to the truth. He started back with Eve. Remember what he did? He caused her to, to doubt God's word and God's goodness. He said, did God really say? And then he added, you won't die. God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. Evil. The accusation was God didn't really want them to have, have, have that wisdom and that he really didn't want them to have fun. Doesn't that sound like a lot of that? of the temptations today? Well, Paul says all who suppress the truth face God's wrath. Then there are those who say, well, there are some people that never, never heard the gospel. Isn't it unfair of God to judge them? And Paul corrects his error because he said there's enough evidence within man and within nature to find and honor God. Because there's both internal and external evidence. We'll see that. When I was a student in college, I went to NEO, and my, my professor of, so, of sociology uh, was an atheist. 
He said he, he claimed to be a man of science, yet he disregarded what science teaches. Because anthropological, he, well, one of the things he said was, no man, uh, not every man worships God. Well, he had his own things that he worshiped. Number one on his throne was him. But anyway, um, anthropological studies, that's science about study about man, reveals that no matter how sophisticated or how primitive a society, how modern or how ancient, how large or how small the group, there's a common knowledge about God. It doesn't matter where you go. You go to Africa or South America. You can go to uh, the, the Native Americans of the United States, or you can go to Australia and, and visit with the Aborigines there. They have common beliefs about God. First is they all believe there's a God or deity. Now, they may not worship Him in the right way. They may not call Him by the same same name, the, the same name or the right name, but everybody has a, has a knowledge that there's a God. Leith Samuel of InterVarsity Fellowship wrote, many missionaries point out that the heathen peoples know more than we think. They know there's a God. There are no atheists among heathen tribes. There's never been discovered upon earth a tribe of people, however small or depraved, which has not believed in some kind of God or had some kind of worship system. Wow. They all believe there's a God. They all believe this is God is eternal and supreme uh, in his power. And they all know that they've sinned. When a Christian comes to talk to them about sin, they all say, well, we know that. They all seem to understand that sin has to be punished. They're afraid of punishment and death, as most people are, but they... They understand it has to happen, and they know that sin must be atoned for, and they seek ways of appeasing their angry deities or deity. That's from uh, an article in Lost, uh, in his magazine titled The Heathen Lost. So, modern science confirms that all men believe in God because the evidence of God is within man. And Paul says these these truths should cause people to worship God, but they don't. Well, then there's the external evidence. That is what we can discover. Paul said that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Well, one way we can see this in, in science is that we're, everything in the world is in ordered. All creation is ordered. As scientists have studied creation, there's a, they've seen an order to God's creation. For example, they look into the heavens, there's order. They look into a microscope or things smaller than you, that you can see in a microscope, but it's all ordered. Molecules of water are always H2O. They're never H2O, something else, always. Carbon dioxide is always CO2. Atoms, which were once thought to be the smallest particle there was, are always made up of Electrons, protons, and neutrons. Um, nature tells us there's a God who ordered creation. Uh, there's there's a, a proof, there, there's a, a scientific theory called intelligent design. Um, Dr. Walter Bradley, distinguished professor of engineering at Baylor Baptist University, was quoted on the issue of intelligent design. He said, one cannot prove or disprove the existence of God, he told his students. One can only ask, 
What does the character or nature of nature suggest? He went on to say the whole question of the origin of life poses difficulty for atheists. He said, who have no explanation for the emergence of the highly complex molecular machinery in cells to process energy, store information, and replicate. DNA itself is a remarkably efficient code that allows all the other molecules to be manufactured. How that information got encoded remains a total enigma. That means nobody understands it. Another mystery, he said, is the mathematical form that nature takes. Most of the great scientists of the 20th century noted with admiration this unexpected characteristic of the universe. Um, he, he goes on to say, everything is in order. He said, intelligent design is a theory that the complexity of the universe and of life could not have happened by random natural processes and shows evidence that they were designed by an intelligent being. Yet still many deny the existence of God. Solomon, in all his wisdom, wrote, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So Paul says the wrath of God is upon man because he should be able to recognize that there is a God out there somewhere and he should be able to worship him because it's in him and he can see it in nature. Secondly, God's wrath is revealed because man has rejected the God of heaven and worshiped their own creation. Look there at verse 21. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. That, uh, excuse me, I skipped down to 26, 21. For though they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Um, Dr. W. Criswell, who pastored First Baptist Church of Dallas many years, uh, in his Criswell Study Bible, says there are four stages of rebellion against God. First, man's guilty of ingratitude towards God. Uh, although they realize ex his existence, they don't glorify him. Uh, they've become more and more horrific in their imagination. Um, look around at the world that you'd see what, what's going on. I mean, just look at the, look at the headlines today. I read headlines today, uh, from Fox News. Just read the headlines. You see all the things in the world going on and you're saying, where do they get these ideas? Well, I can tell you it's from the father of lies. Uh, number three, man's blinded in his delusion. Paul says their foolish heart has been darkened. Uh, and this leads to distortion of the con concept of God. Um, I'm going to skip down because we're going to run out of time. But we think of primitive societies. We think about how man has changed the truth uh, of God for a lie. In primitive so so societies, I'll get it out in a minute. Uh, many times they only kill the animals after asking permission. Why? God gave them to us for food, right? But here's something. In India, we have all heard that Indians don't eat meat. Cattle run the streets. You know why? Because they believe that one of the departed Brethren may have, their soul may have come into that animal and they might be killing a brother or a sister or a cousin. Um, so we want to ask the question, how can man, with all his wisdom and, and intelligence, reject God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ? 
Because they listen to the wrong voice. They listen to the enemy. And so Paul says that three times in verses 24 to 28, God revealed his wrath and gave them over to their desires. God didn't cause anybody to sin, but in his love towards us, he gave us a free will. What does a free will say? It says, I get to choose what I do. I get to choose whether I'm going to serve the God of heaven or reject him. I've got a free will. But when we disobey God, we face the consequences of our action. Um, I used to, when I was in seminary, my New Testament professor was Dr. Coble. And he explained this way. It's like somebody falling overboard off a ship. Now, if you're in, 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 in the waters, in the ocean, and you've fallen off a ship, what do you do? Well, you wait for somebody to throw you a, a rope or a lifeboat or something. You're not going to just swim back to shore unless you're close to shore. But you're in the middle of the ocean. What do you do? You wait for somebody. Well, you got a free will. Somebody's throwing you a buoy. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to grab the buoy. And that's what evangelism's like. We're swimming in the sea of sin. This is his analogy. We're swimming in the sea of sin. And God has thrown in us a boy in life in Jesus Christ. We have to choose whether we're going to accept it or not. But many have rejected that. Uh, and because of that, Paul says, uh, God's delivered them over to the desires of their heart, to impurity. Their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, the contemporary English version says, so God let these people go their own way. They did what they wanted to do, and their filthy thoughts made them do shameful things with their bodies. And so God gave them over to their passions. And Paul attacked the problem of his day and ours. Two things, homosexuality and adultery. Both are sins. Both are things that our society tolerates, though they've separated man from God. We live in a day where men not only condone sin, but encourage it. Instead of calling what things what the Bible calls it, they give them euphemisms. To be gay sounds a whole lot better than to say always homosexual, but that's what it is. Gay is a, a less offensive word, or just use the the syllables LGBTQ plus, and they justify the lifestyle, saying, "Well, this this is just the way God made me." No, God only created male and female. And I read this this week in the news. No matter how much makeup you apply to a man or how he dresses, you cannot change his DNA, nor can you change his sex. You may mutilate his body, but he will never be a woman. God gave them over to their sin. It means God allowed them to step further and further away towards judgment. God still loves them. God will still offer them eternal life if they'll repent. But God gave them over. And the next thing he says, he gave them over to depraved mind. There in verses 28 to 32. Because they didn't think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they would do what's not right. And list that whole list of, of things that they might do. In verse 32, 
although they know God's just sins, and those who practice these things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they applaud others who practice them. That's what I understand. People standing on the sidelines saying, Yo, go, keep doing it for all these terrible, terrible lifestyles. We see it when our president yesterday talks about how heroic people are who have adapted a pride lifestyle. Some of the bravest people in the world, he said, his words, not mine. Retired pastor Ted Kirsch, a good friend of mine, who's preached for us several times, commented on verse 28. He said, as I watch and listen to the most unbelievable reasoning given for the rampant sin and behavior and outlandish thinking across our nation, there's only one explanation that makes sense to me. It's very clear in Romans 128. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. A depraved mind means a mind that's lost the ability to make moral judgments. Right's wrong to such a mind, and wrong is right. Only a darkened, depraved mind can come up with a thinking and corresponding behaviors across our nation. Paul said that those with depraved minds not only commit all unrighteousness, but give approval to those who practice these things. And he concluded with this word, I can't believe what the world is condoning today. Well, one final word is, as we get ready to close. Many today say the church is irrelevant because we refuse to accept the homosexual lifestyle and that we are haters. It's hard for many to believe that we can love sinners and hate sin. But that was the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible said many times that he ate with sinners and sinners came to him, but he never condoned sin. He loved sinners but hated their sin. And we're to be just like that. The Bible says the wrath of God is against all sin. Our heart ought to be moved with compassion for those that are facing the wrath of God and pray for them and encourage them to come to Christ, beg them if that's what we need to do, to come to Jesus, to leave behind that lifestyle. Because the wrath of God is eternal. The judgment of God on sin for those who refuse to accept Jesus is eternal. The Bible says God is a God of love. That's His nature. But He is provoked to wrath. And Paul writes that God's wrath is justified because of man's sin. I want to conclude with a verse from the Gospel of John. It's familiar. It's John 3. Verse 14 says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is condemned already. That means they face the judgment of God because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And then Romans 1.8, excuse me, 1.18 again in, in the 
GW version, I don't remember what that means, but the GW version. God's anger is revealed from heaven against every ungodly and immoral thing people do as they try to suppress the truth by their immoral living. God hates sin, but he loves sinners. God's nature is love, and he wants to redeem all because all need a Savior. Paul wrote later in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He writes that the wrath of God is against sinners, but the love of God is for all who call upon the name of the Lord, because all can be saved. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your love and mercy. We praise you, Lord, that you love us with an everlasting love. We praise you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, that we might have eternal life. And yet, Father, your word says that your wrath is against sin and against those who continue in their sin and refuse to accept your son. I pray, Father, that that we would grieve over the sin of our nation. That rather than point fingers at sinners and, and talk about how things are bad, we would get on our knees before you, broken because of the lifestyles of so many. I don't believe that the judgment of God is a time for us to gloat. Break us, Father. For those that are facing your judgment so that we might go to them. And Father, we pray for those that are facing your judgment, that are facing your wrath, that their hearts would, would be tender, that they would believe and hear the message of God, that is that they see your creation and and the order of creation, they begin to understand that there has to be a creator. Because the world is so complex and time cannot be long enough for all these things to work themselves out. And I pray, Father, as the Spirit of God speaks in hearts, convicting about sin and judgment and righteousness, that people as they're convinced that there, there is a God somewhere, that they would turn to you and, and find you through Jesus Christ. Pray, fathers are convicted of, of the punishment for sin, that they'll turn to Jesus. Pray, Father, that they'd receive hope for eternal life. So, so Father, make us a church that understands your wrath. Put, put the determination in our heart that every person we see, we're gonna we're gonna do everything they can so they don't have to face that. 
And as you open up opportunities for us to influence others' lives, that we show them Jesus, that we speak Jesus to them. Father, if there's anyone here today that's still facing your wrath, that's never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that today they might trust Jesus. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.